You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. Those who are food insecure are either children or seniors. Later in the program, we have Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Today, we look into food insecurity in Monroe and Brown counties. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, counterfeit websites on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. But first, the latest edition of Deep Dive. Merry Christmas. I want to go bring my Christmas This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Today we are looking into food insecurity in Monroe and Brown counties. In Bloomington, one out of every 10 residents cannot access the food they need. That's according to the 2021 Bloomington Food Access Report. United Way of South Central Indiana reports that Monroe County has a 16% food insecurity rate, which is higher than both the state and national averages. In Brown County, the food insecurity rate is 10.6%, according to Feeding America. According to the Bloomington Food Access Report, the top five barriers to accessing food are high food prices, time to prepare food, low wages, housing costs, and limited transportation. In addition to low wages, a percentage of residents said that Social Security benefits were too low to cover the cost of living. WFHB News spoke with Julio Alonzo, Executive Director and CEO of the Hoosier Hills Food Bank. According to its website, Hoosier Hills collects, stores, and distributes food to nonprofit agencies that feed the hungry in Brown, Lawrence, Orange, Owen, Martin, and Monroe counties. Alonzo defined what food insecurity means, saying that it's when members of the community don't have access to nutritious food on a regular basis. Food insecurity is actually a technical term um, created sort of to replace the term hunger uh, because the government felt uh, many years ago you couldn't really measure hunger. Um, and, um, you know, people like to have a uh, a statistic that they can uh, that they can go by, so to speak. I mean, h- hunger is a feeling that people uh, experience. So, uh, food insecurity is is um, actually a, a government term through the United States Department of Agriculture that uh, describes a situation where people don't have access to nutritious food on a regular basis, uh, and every year the um, the government comes up with some um, some numbers based on census data and based on um, a national survey of people to determine uh, how many folks that um, at any given time might not have had access to nutritious food on a regular basis. He cited low wages, inequity, high food prices, 
a lack of transportation, the cost of childcare, and, quote, a myriad of other reasons as the root causes of food insecurity. In my humble opinion of, you know, doing this for 20 some odd years, um, but also backed up by surveys that we have um, uh, have done with our, our partner agencies and with uh, individual uh, clients as well that have come through for, for services and from what I've seen from other surveys and, and uh, statistics done in the community. The primary cause is low wages, um, uh, inequity in uh, income and and wealth um, are really the driving force. Um, people don't make enough money to be able to sustain themselves on a regular basis. There, there are just too many jobs out there that don't pay uh, a living wage, uh, and and that's the the primary cause. Um, another factor is uh, high food prices, and uh, clients have indicated that time and time again. That has been especially uh, true the past two years or so with uh, with inflation, when even people who make a good income and have a living wage um, are experiencing sticker shock at the grocery store, uh, just seeing how much you know what what everyday items that they've they bought uh, are are costing them now so high high food prices is also a um uh, uh one of the major causes of uh, of food insecurity and hunger and then um there are really a myriad of other causes that are somewhat linked to that um that wage inform uh, information and and wage disparity as well uh, lack of transportation um people don't have the ability to get to well, either to work um, or to uh, to somewhere where they can get food. Uh, child care is an issue for a lot of people. Um, they're unable to work because they can't uh, provide child care for their children, or consequently, they're paying a lot for child care for their children, so they don't have enough money for uh, for food. Um, health issues: a lot of people with disabilities um, or uh, or health. Chronic health conditions are the ones that are coming through food pantries and food kitchens. Um, and then, you know, sort of back to the whole wage issue, people on, on low incomes and fixed incomes, uh, senior citizens in particular, we have seen uh, over the past few years, uh, especially as a, uh, a growing um, community of folks that uh, are, are food insecure because they don't have the, the resources to be able to keep up with the prices that they're seeing these days. So there are a myriad of, of um, underlying causes, uh, but, you know, I would, I would definitely say the top two are uh, low wages and high prices. I have all the chocolate milk you want in the little things. It's fat free. We have fat free. I do have one for two percent right there. I'll take the two percent. But I'll give you all the chocolate milk you want. The school will give us all those because they're going to be closed. Okay. And we've got pies and we've got yogurt. Okay. Thanks. Hi, how are you? You want 10 dinners? Okay. We also spoke with Executive Director of Mother's Cupboard Community Kitchen in Nashville, Indiana, Jill Baker, who explained that people can't afford to pay for groceries after they have paid for their rent and utilities. 
I do think that um, there's a lot of, um, it's just people can't afford living, you know, on a day-to-day basis. That I mean, just that's the core. They can't make enough money, and then their housing is expensive, um, and then food is expensive. I mean, it, it's, the, it's not that hard if you're only making $12 an hour and your wife is making, maybe both of you are working and making that. But I think about trying to raise a family on $24 an hour and maybe not even getting 40 hours a week. So when you put that into an equation and you have to pay rent, that's probably a little too high. And then your groceries just went up by 10% or something, which for me and my husband wouldn't bother us. But it sure does if your income's tight. Um, But rent is still there and utilities are still there. And so how are you feeding yourself? And I will say that if you were there, you'd probably noticed a lot of elderly because that is a big piece of the group that comes in. And we will have some ladies that will come and get five or six meals for other people in their area that can't get out. Mm-hmm. So everybody kind of takes care of everybody there. Um, that's the other half. If you're living on 700 a month, you're pretty limited. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty common. And as you age, you may not be able to get a little part-time job or something that could help you out, you know? So what are you going to do? And so I think those are all things that um, link into the same issue. You know, it's just expensive to live. Mm-hmm. And how do we take care of that? I don't know. We, I don't know. Do we pay people more, which I think makes sense, but, um, but it's still... Everything is high. So, I mean, rent is crazy. And to buy a home right now is, I mean, for you guys, I think it's mm-hmm. really hard. Uh, I hear from my daughter. <laughs> and, uh, and she makes a very good living. But she's a mom. Oh, my gosh, it's so expensive. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember in the 80s when we bought her. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just not mm-hmm. the same world. So how do we deal with that? I don't know. But. Again, if you're only making $700 a month mm-hmm. and your rent is four, 300 doesn't go very far in this day and age, especially if you had to pay 50 for your utilities. And maybe you have prescription drugs, too, on top of that, which um, could eat up the rest. So it's, it, that's why we're here. Baker highlighted that a lot of families rely on the school system to provide meals for their children, and when school isn't in session over the summer or over holidays and snow days, that the families might need extra help to meet their needs. One of the moms that I worked, or uh, the executive director Habitat was saying, do you realize how much my kids go through when we're not at school? How much food the kids eat because they're not being fed by school? She goes, it's crazy. I'm like, oh, I never even think about that. Mm-hmm. But I can remember, you know, having to go out and get a lot of food when the girls were home. So, yeah, I mean, it just, um, we just don't think about that. But And uh, then once the kids go back to school, they're getting breakfast and lunch, maybe a snack, depending on their age, and or if they're after school. Would you say they were all uh, <laughs> Alexa. 
play happy Christmas music. One more. Alexa, play happy Christmas music. She may not like it there. I don't know if she's going to get anything. In the most recent Bloomington Food Access report, a growing number of city residents reported they cannot access fresh, locally grown, and culturally appropriate food. Alonzo explained that recently, culturally significant food has become more of a priority for them. At the end of the day, he said that food items they have in stock are largely at the mercy of their donors. Um, I think there's been a growing recognition that that's something that's important. Um, it hasn't always been the case, uh, I, I don't think, but I think um, um, folks are coming around to um, to acknowledging that as as something that lacks in the um, the food assistance system. Um, part of the problem, unfortunately, is that the majority of the food that we work with, that food pantries work with, um, are, is donated. And what you know, what we do is provide about five and a half million pounds of food through a network of almost 100 partner agencies in six counties each year. Um, the bulk of that food is donated. Um, we rescue it from grocery stores, restaurants, um, wholesalers, um, anywhere that, um, that we can. And um, another chunk of it comes from the government through federal commodity programs through the USDA. Uh, so essentially, um, you know, we are at the mercy of our donors to some degree in terms of being able to provide food. Um, that means it's not necessarily always the, the most nutritious food. Um, culturally relevant um, is not always necessarily a, a priority there either. It's sort of a take what you can get uh, situation. Now, we and a lot of other food banks across the country have uh, attempted to, to remedy that to some degree by purchasing more food. And that's what we've had to do uh, over the last, I don't know, five or, or six years in particular. But uh, we purchased a significant, uh, um, significantly more amount of our food than we ever used to to supplement the donations that we receive just in order to keep up with the, um, um, the demand. Um, again, um, some of the culturally relevant foods are harder to find and more expensive. So that's a, that continues to be somewhat of a, of a challenge uh, for us and for other food banks and food pantries. But we do make an attempt to do that. We are um, you know, considering that in our purchasing. And we have um, developed over the last year or so with some help from Feeding America, some pantries that um, target underserved populations. Uh, in particular, we've got one here in Monroe County that targets the Hispanic and Latino community. And we've we've tried to find um, at least some foods that are culturally relevant to those populations and make them available as we can. He then addressed who is most impacted by food insecurity, saying vulnerable populations like children, the elderly, people of color, and those with disabilities are disproportionately affected. Well, typically it is those at either end of the spectrum, uh, particularly the age spectrum. Um, children and seniors are, are typically um, the most vulnerable populations and um, the ones that are most in need of service, at least through um, through the, the food assistance uh, network. Um, and I think um, numbers will back that up in terms of food insecurity numbers that um, significant numbers of, uh, um, of, of uh, those who are food insecure are either children or seniors. Uh, and I think that's 
uh, probably the case with SNAP benefits as well. Um, significant numbers of um, those beneficiaries are, are um, children and, and seniors. Um, so it's those those folks in particular. Um, there's also, you know, historically, um, uh, communities of color have traditionally had higher food insecurity rates than um, than other populations. Um, so that's a factor out there as well. And and then again, um, folks who are either uh, living on fixed incomes or low incomes um, are probably most likely to be food insecure. At the same time, Alonzo says that anyone can be impacted by food insecurity. He said that there's a stigma that exists in society about receiving help. That issue definitely exists. It's, it's you know, it, it's a real one. It is, you know, unfortunately exacerbated by some folks who who are of the opinion that, um, you know, the the only people needing this type of assistance are those who are unwilling to work or um, unwilling to to um, to pick themselves up and um, and do what they need to do in in order to be able to um, to afford food, um, and that is is simply not the case um, in in general. I mean, there are always there are exceptions to every rule, and there are folks that will game any system that's out there, there you know, no doubt. Um, but the vast majority of the people um, we have found and, and our colleagues have found um, that access these services are folks that that really need them. There is definitely a stigma. Um, there are a lot of people who um, are embarrassed or ashamed about having to access uh, food resources, go to a food pantry, go to a kitchen. They simply don't feel that that's that's something that's that's in their wheelhouse that um that that doing so somehow um is is an admission of failure or um uh, or they they're they're too embarrassed to let other people know that they're in a situation where they need that um that kind of assistance um i will say that one of the things that helped us get around that um a little bit was the pandemic <laughs> um ironically um we saw a lot of people, and I do mean a lot of people, and this was across the country and probably across the world, frankly, um, but a lot of people who had never even thought they would have to visit a food pantry um, or a kitchen. It, you know, it just never occurred to them, but they suddenly had no work, uh, um, had no place for their kids to go to school or, or, or for childcare, um, had no income and, and found themselves in that, that situation. And um, so I think a lot more people sort of overcame that stigma during the the pandemic, and it helped us to kind of, of beat that down. One of the things that uh, many food banks try to do, uh, and food pantries and and, uh, and other agencies, is um, to to make themselves low barrier so that there is less opportunity for that kind of of um, embarrassment or fear to access uh, the services that uh, that people might need. Um, you know, that, again, sort of butts up against people who, who want more accountability and, and want to ensure um, that the people accessing these services actually need them. Uh, you know, I would say the majority of food banks really believe the first thing is to get people fed and that most people would not access services like these, in part for the reasons that you've described, if they didn't really need them. Uh, so uh, a lot of places are, are low barrier, very minimal requirements, or, or in some cases, no questions asked. And um, that's one attempt to, um, uh, to perhaps reduce some of that stigma and fear for people.
Baker said that their policy is to serve anyone who comes in without asking to see any proof of their financials. She said that struggling with food insecurity can happen to anyone, and they do not judge their guests for needing their help. I mean, you know, any of us could be in this position minus two mm-hmm. checks. I mean, you know, I've been where I've worked at, you know, as a hot lunch lady or whatever, you don't make a lot of money. And so, you know, you just, you get by and you do what you have to do and you start, you know, you put a little money in savings and cake for a rainy day, but sometimes those rainy days can be bigger than you imagine. And so any of us could be in that position or many of us, I guess. So it's, you know, no, no questions asked. And that's the other thing that I think is what really with, Mother's cupboard is that there are no questions asked. That's a huge thing because we don't care. If you come and you need food, you get it. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to know your finances. We don't want to know that. But and that's real important. Um, and I think because you don't know, one day one family could be having a struggle. Or you have no idea. Maybe you know. I always think maybe someone's sick at home and they just. They can't cook and they're a mess. They just don't know, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on. But at least they know they can come over here and get a good meal and go home and at least, oh, okay, we got that done. You know, it could be a new baby. You don't know. It could just be anything. So that's what that's about. But also making sure that those friends of ours that are really struggling have food, hot meal every day. And also that they have an option to get what they need from the pantry and from the market you know, and, and get whatever they need and, and not feel judged because it's, it, we're not any of us too far from that. Why not have fun and let's, you know, enjoy each other. And so I think that's been the big thing. And especially for young families that come in, they're just in the beginning, I could notice that they'd struggle a little bit. And it's like, get in here. What mm-hmm. do you need? Hey kids, what do you guys need? You know, and it, bring coming out and talking to everybody and getting connected. It's so important um, for our volunteers, me, any one of us. You've been listening to Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate. Tune in next week to learn more about how food insecurity impacts residents of Monroe County. To read the full article written by Christina Avery and Haley Miller and photographed by Olivia Bianco, visit Limestone Post Magazine. Up next, counterfeit websites on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Everybody's heard about counterfeit money, and these days there's always some of it floating around. When you hand a $20 bill to a cashier, they often use a special pen or a scanner to check it out. 
But the slickest, smartest counterfeiters aren't faking cash these days. They're creating phony websites that are perfect imitations of the websites put up by banks, retailers, professional organizations, government agencies, and famous people. Artificial intelligence programs are making this kind of fraud easier and more effective. When you go online, you can find yourself interacting with a bogus website without knowing it. If you make a tiny error in typing in a web address or click a link in an email or a pop-up window, the con artists can trick a search engine into listing their booby trap websites ahead of the real ones. It could be a website that looks exactly like you're shopping at Target or Lowe's or Amazon, often featuring super-duper deals that look too good to be true or a login page that delivers your password to a crook. There are fake computer support websites that want total access to your computer or phone, imitation medical websites that will steal your personal info, and counterfeit websites for package delivery services or flight booking, which trick you into entering your address and credit card numbers. A button that says, Book Now, in an ad for a flight or an Airbnb, can be a snare. Here's how to spot a fake website. First, double and triple check the address in your browser. Make sure it's headed by HTTPS. The S means secure. And look for the locked padlock icon at the top of your screen. Beyond that, anything even a little weird is suspicious. Bankofamerica.com was spoofed as B-A-N-K-O-F-F America, adding an extra F. Walmart.com was imitated by replacing the L in Walmart with a capital I. PayPal.com.secure-site.com used the web address you expect and adds a second address, which is the phony. Real websites have contact information, a phone number, and a street address. If you can't find those, watch out. You can go to the Whois website and enter the address and see how long it's been registered. If it's a new one, but the company has been around a long time, beware. Finally, there are a number of websites which will check a web address and let you know if it's real. These include scamvoid.net, urlvoid.com, and scamadvisor.com. Just paste the web address into the box and click. Can't remember those names? Do a quick search for Website Checker, and it's not a bad idea to check the URL on more than one of them. Be careful out there. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence 
and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Kate Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Kate Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Hereabouts Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 